Hello and welcome to Athlete to Adult, a podcast where we guide you through the transition from athlete to adult by talking to those that have lived it. I'm your host, Danielle Day. Thanks for joining us. I have Allie Peterson back with me this week. Instead of the usual interview episode, we're going to switch it up a bit. Allie and I are going to run through our five most important financial tips. These run the gamut from credit cards to budgeting and saving for retirement. Obviously, we don't have the time to go in-depth on everything in this episode, but if you have questions, feel free to reach out to Allie and I via Instagram DM. We love to chat about this stuff. Now on to the good stuff. Our first tip is about the importance of credit and how important it is that you start building credit as soon as you can. The best way that I have found to build credit at an early age is to get a credit card. I know sometimes credit cards have a bad rap, but truly we're going to give you some tips today that will get you started kind of in baby steps and get you moving in the right direction. If you don't have any credit, so if you're like me when I got to college, I didn't have any credit because I had never had a credit card before. I went to PNC, that just happened to be what was closest to my college campus, and got what's called a secured credit card. You can get them from most banks, I think. In my case, I think I gave PNC like $250 in cash or from my like checking account, and they gave me a secured credit card that had a $250 limit. That was my max, and I paid it off every single month. I think it was for like between six months and a year, depending on how much you use it and how frequently, how well you do at paying it off. And after that six month to a year period, they give you a real credit card and you get your $250 back. That's something that I did as well when I first got a credit card. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't do mine until after college. And the downside of that is actually when I first moved to North Carolina after college, I thought I had the perfect apartment picked out. I was really excited about it. But then when I went to apply, the leasing company would not rent it to me because I had no credit. I had no credit score. They wouldn't even let me put down a large down payment or have my parents co-sign. They said pretty much you're out of luck. Luckily, I did find another apartment that would rent to me, but needless to say, I went out and signed up for a credit card that day. And I did just what Danielle said. I had a secured credit card. That's usually where you have to start out. They won't just give you a credit card willy-nilly, um, but it, it does kind of ease you into it in a really nice way. Once you get, whether it's with the secured card or the regular credit card, you want to use it to buy things that you can afford and you want to pay it off in full every month. I kind of think of it as if it is a debit card. I don't put things on my credit card that I wouldn't be able to pay for with the money that I already have in my bank account. Your credit card will have a statement cycle and you typically have one month from the end of that cycle to pay the bill. And if you're really nervous about using a credit card for the first time and think you may go overboard, start off by just using it for gas and groceries. Oftentimes your credit card will have special cash back offers for these categories anyways. I know my card offers 3% back on gas and 2% on groceries, which can really add up over time. Another thing you can do if you're worried that you're going to mess it up if you get a credit card is to turn on auto pay. Um, I recommend to turn it on that you auto pay the full amount of your statement, but you can also set it to auto pay just the minimum amount. This will keep you from getting dinged on your credit score. Turning on auto pay will make it so that when that statement becomes due, 
it will automatically draw from your checking account and you won't go into um, being late on your payment. However, if you only do the minimum amount on auto pay or you choose to only pay the minimum amount, it's really important to remember that you'll pay interest and likely a really high interest rate on whatever amount you carry over. We really want to try our best to avoid this, although we know sometimes life puts you in circumstances where you can't avoid it. Now let's talk about credit score, how it's calculated and what it really means. We could spend a whole episode on this, but for now we're just going to stick to the basics. You hear people throw around numbers when they're talking about their credit score, 700, 800, but what makes up this score? So credit score is a pie chart of five things. The main chunk is 35% of your score is determined by your payment history. This is why it's really important to turn on auto pay or ensure that you're paying your card off each month and on time. Another large chunk, 30% of your score is determined by your credit usage. So that's how much of your available credit you're using and how much you're how much you owe. 15% is de- is determined by the length of your credit history, which is why it's really important to open up a credit card early because it can take time to build it up. 10% is then determined by new credit, including how many recent credit card checks you have and how many credit cards you have. So this is why it's important to apply for new credit sparingly. Do not open a new credit card at each of your favorite retail stores, no matter how great the terms sound. Having more than one credit card is okay and can be beneficial, but having more than four or five can really harm your score, and it's a really a lot to keep track of and pay off at the end of each month. And then the final 10% is determined by your credit mix and diversification, so how many credit cards versus mortgage loans, um, retail accounts, etc. that you have. So how can you check your score? Many bank apps will have your score easily accessible right within the app. I use Bank of America and they actually send me alert whenever my score has changed as well as a monthly alert score. You can also use a free service such as Credit Karma. Really get in the habit of checking your score at least monthly. Checking your score is free and will not affect it in any way. Your score will ultimately be a number between 300 and 850. Poor credit is anything below 580. And then very good or excellent credit is anything above 740. Like we mentioned before, it can take time to build up to a high score, but having a high score is important for taking out loans, mortgages, renting, etc. If your score is lower than you'd like, don't panic. There are several easy ways that you can raise it. And one thing that can be important to note is that your credit score is calculated by a couple different entities and so it can be different depending on where you're looking at it and it does change over time it gets recalculated I don't even know the interval but every once in a while and so there is a potential to move forward you're not stuck with a low credit score even if you have one at this moment topic number two is the power of compound interest first we'll start out by answering the question what is compound interest In its simplest form, it's when interest accrues on the principal, which is the original amount, like the loan amount that you took out or the amount that you actually put into your investment account and on the interest that was previously accrued. This leads to exponential growth over time. If you want to see for yourself, you can Google compound interest calculator. I like the one on NerdWallet, but there are a ton of different ones and they mostly do the same thing. I think this can be something that's helpful to hear about, but can be really impactful when you get to go in and play with the numbers yourself. 
So the reason compound interest is so important and so valuable is because it really allows your money to add up over time. So that's why we always say to start investing as soon as possible. Let's say that you start investing $200 a month at the age of 25. By the age of 65, you'll have over $500,000. Now, if you start doing the same thing, investing $200 a month at age 35, by age 65, you'll only have around $250,000. So that right there cuts the amount that you will have in half just by starting 10 years later. Even worse, if you start investing $200 a month at age 45, by age 65, you'll only have around $100,000. So you can really see the value of compound interest here. And this is using the general market returns. Correct. The average over the last 10 years. So really usually tracking the S&P 500. Another cool thing that you can do is use the rule of 72. So this is used to calculate how long it will take you to double your money. All you have to do is take 72 divided by your interest rate or um, the rate that you are earning on your investment. And that'll equal the number of years it will take you to double your money. So for example, if you invest $1,000 that's earning 10% interest, it will take you 7.2 years to double your money. In that regard, it's never too early to start saving for retirement. I know as young professionals, some people are just like, throw that retirement brochure (laughs) out the window when you start working. And other people are doubling down and maxing out all of their retirement accounts. It doesn't have to be one way or the other. As Allie was talking about, $200 a month or even $50 a month makes a big difference over time. Time in the market is one of the most important things about investing. For most young people, the best way to get started investing is to take advantage of your company's retirement accounts. Typically, your company will order will offer some kind of match. First of all, if they're matching, typically they match a couple percent for every up to a certain amount that you put in, it's a guaranteed 100% return when they match and put in every dollar that you put in. Then it's going to be invested. And thanks to compound interest, both of those dollars, the one that you put in and the one your employer puts in, will almost certainly grow, as Allie described, over time. And when you get a few decades down the line and you want to retire, you're almost guaranteed to have a bigger chunk of money sitting there if you invest in a well-diversified portfolio and kind of stick it out over the decades and, and don't do some of the, the things we're going to talk about later as far as um, day trading. I know Allie and I prefer to use indexes as an easy way to get started and to ensure that you're well-diversified We are not financial professionals, and this is not investing or legal advice. Um, Typically, you'll hear people talk about investing in a single stock, whether that's Amazon or GameStop. Kind of runs the gamut. People, especially lately, you hear a lot about Reddit um, forums discussing the next best thing to invest in. Investing in in single stocks can be really volatile and risky because single companies can fail or they can succeed, but there's not going to be a lot of in-between. 
we like to invest in index funds. These are single investments that mirror entire indices. So that would be like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ. That's an entire group of stock, of individual stocks that um, has been proven over the years to based on the historical returns to have always always have a positive return i think every 20 year period the longer you go the more likely you are to get a positive return when you're invested in um, something particularly like the s p 500. right and the reason that investing in indexes or mutual funds can be so great too is it guarantees diversification and diversification is really important because you want to have your money in various stocks in all of the sectors of the economy because some industries will go up with the economy and some will go down so you want to make sure that you have a good mix of technology companies healthcare, um even energy energy all of these are sectors of the economy and you can google if you want to see what they all are but using those indices is a really easy way to do that you can also use a robo robo advisor like betterment with a robo-advisor, all you have to do is to deposit cash into your account and they will automatically create a diversified portfolio for you. So you don't even have to worry about which indices to invest in. Yeah, they and they'll do they ask you a couple questions, I believe, before you get started and they adjust where you're invested and how your diversification between stocks and bonds based on where you are and what your goals are for the money. The other thing that's important to mention um, is that index funds typically have very low fees because they are not actively managed. And over time, that half a percent or even a full percent difference in fees between an index fund and an actively managed fund can make a big difference in your returns over 20 or 30 years. Better Things like Betterment robo-advisors have a little bit higher fee than your typical index fund, but they're still going to be much lower than mutual funds that are actively managed. Exactly. And it's just a great way to get started if you're nervous about investing or um, don't have a lot of background. One really big thing to mention too, uh, as De- Danielle mentioned earlier, is the difference between day trading and long-term investing. So we hear a lot in social media, TikTok, whatever, about how people are making it big, investing in GameStop or these random stocks and just trying to make a quick buck. But at the end of the day, there is no such thing as free money. 95% of day traders lose money while the average rate of return for a 10-year investment is around 12%. Robinhood and other new investing apps are making it really easy and tempting to buy and sell stocks daily. People think they can outsmart the market and make a quick buck, but the truth is no one can predict the market, not even those experts on CNBC. Sorry, Jim Cramer. Um, (laughs) Long-term investing is much less risky, less stressful, leads to less capital gains tax and commission fees, and honestly, who has the time to track the stock market every hour of the day? Third is creating a budget. I think that budgets get a bad rap. <laughs> they People are scared of them. They think they're automatically restrictive. People live by budgets, but they call them other things, right. so they don't have to say that they're on a budget. I prefer to create a budget that fits me and my values and just call it a budget and be happy with the life that it helps me create. The key to me 
for creating a budget that fits you is to track your spending for at least one month and then create your budget. You don't need to track everything pencil and paper, but you can if that works for you. I prefer to use my credit card statement and or my bank statements to see where my money is going. I think it's literally helpful to go through like with a highlighter or in a spreadsheet and go line by line and break each transaction up into categories. Once you have your category set, you can determine your average for each category over the last few months. I recommend doing two to three months because you can see how things flow. You know, there's no one month that is normal or absolutely representative of your spending. That goes to creating your categories. How many categories should my budget have in it is a common question. I think when people look to create a budget for the first time, and I think there's no right answer. Some people are comfortable getting into the minutia of their budgets and they want to basically like line item. They want to break it all down and other people prefer to have four or five general categories that they break their spending done into and that's it. The most important thing is to make sure that your budget is applicable to your situation and something that you can actually follow. And it's important to note that the first budget you create is most definitely not going to be the budget probably that you're on by the end of the month or the end of the next month. It's To me, it's a really iterative process and the only way to start is to start somewhere. So don't feel like you have to be stuck by the first budget that you create. My husband and I create and track our long-term budget in a shared Google spreadsheet, but we use the app Copilot to track our day-to-day spending while we're on the go. It connects to all of our accounts, spending, and then also investment accounts, and it automatically updates. It's, I think, really user-friendly. It has great categorization process and everything, so we really love it and there's a code in the description that will extend your one free month to two months if you're interested in trying it out but the most important advice i can give you is to do whatever works for you whether that's an app a spreadsheet or even just using a piece of paper i also actually use the copilot app and i love it um, i used to track by hand in an excel sheet but sometimes it's hard to remember to look at it every day and add those items in So with Copilot, I love that you can not only just add your credit cards, but also your investment accounts and your loans. Um, Like Danielle said, it really doesn't matter what app or tool you use. Just make sure that you're doing something to track your spending. Another really important thing is to budget before you spend, not after. If you're saving up for a car or college or even a pair of shoes, it's a lot more beneficial to budget for this purchase before you spend instead of trying to adjust or make up for it afterwards. As an example, the year before I enrolled in my master's program, I cut back in a few areas of my spending and put that money into a high yield savings account. I then used this money to pay for my first couple semesters of school upfront instead of taking out a loan right away. I know this example isn't uh, applicable to everyone, but you can use it as a model for any upcoming purchase, no matter how large or small. The other thing you can do kind of in that vein is if you're going to make a big purchase, like maybe you're going to go from renting to buying a house, you it can be helpful to model your new situation in your budget before you get there. What expenses are going to change? What are going to stay the same? Um, I think it can actually make you feel more comfortable and confident in those kinds of decisions if you have run the numbers rather than just dug your head in the sand and prayed for the best. Totally agree. 
The last thing that we want to talk to about budgeting is to avoid lifestyle creep. In most cases, we earn significantly more in our in the later years of our career than in our early years. It's helpful to, as you get a raise, decide that some certain percentage is going to go towards savings and investments for long-term goals, and then the other part of it you can spend, whether that is a lifestyle kind of increase or whether it's just a one-off fun purchase. This doesn't mean you need to live like a kid for the college kid for the rest of your life, but it is a reminder to live within your means and that the more buffer you have between how much your lifestyle costs and how much income you're bringing in, the easier it will be to save and invest because you'll have more money to do that with. All right, the next thing we're going to talk about is the idea of value versus price. Everyone values things differently, so it's important to figure out what is important for you and what makes you happy. Spend money in those areas and cut back in others. If going to Starbucks every day truly makes you happy, that's okay. Just make sure you include it in your budget. Everyone likes to spend money in different ways and that is okay. No one is here to judge you. One example of this is when you're buying clothes. Buying a $5 shirt that you wear twice versus an $80 shirt that you keep for 10 years. So really thinking about cost per wear and use. This is something that I really started practicing in the last three years of my life. I no longer shop at discount retailers and instead focus on buying quality clothing over quantity. This works for me because I don't really follow the trends and I like to have a lot more of a simple, versatile wardrobe with pieces that I can keep for years. But everybody is different, so if you do like to follow the trends, spend money on a few staple pieces and try not to overspend on those more trendy pieces that you may only wear a couple of times. I think that's a great point and kind of to go along with that, I think it can be a good reminder to be frugal and not be cheap. If you are cheap and you spend $2 on something instead of spending $5 on something, but being cheap make, means that you the $2 thing is made worse and you have to replace it every two months instead of replacing the $5 thing every year, you aren't actually saving money and you are wasting your own time by having to replace it and deal with something that is of a lower quality. So I think that Going back to something Ali said earlier, as far as spending aligning with your, spending aligning with your values and not being worried that people are judging you, we shouldn't judge each other based on what we spend. All right, the last thing that we're going to talk about is the importance of annualizing your monthly payments. So thinking about your subscriptions or anything else that you're paying monthly for. a month may not sound like a lot for a subscription or payment plan, but think about how much that can add up over a year's time. $50 a month equals $600 a year. If you aren't willing to pay $600 upfront for that service, you shouldn't be willing to pay $50 a month for it. So something that can really help is to go through all of your monthly recurring payments and turn off anything that you don't really use or need. This is a good tip to use if you're tight or you want to kind of rein in your budget, whether that be because you lost your job or you just want to create more margin or any of, you know, in any of those circumstances, it can be helpful to kind of like we just spoke about value-based spending as it relates to clothes value-based spending, do I really need this subscription? Like maybe if you subscribe to like Netflix or 
Apple TV, do am I using this subscription this month? If you only use it to watch a couple TV shows, maybe you shut it off for a few months and come back to it when you really are going to use it. I also think with the advent of so many subscription services, especially with through COVID, that it's important to make sure that you are really using and getting the value out of the subscriptions that you are paying for. You know, if you got a Peloton subscription during COVID, and your Peloton is now a coat rack, or even if you just got the app subscription and you don't use it anymore, it's worth canceling that because that $14 or $45 is better in your pocket than in Peloton's. Definitely, and this is something um, that can really be useful. I know right now everybody's a little bit uneasy about the economy, so this is one way right away to save, I mean, up to hundreds of dollars each month do you really need that $50 beauty box that you get each month or 10 streaming services? Like Danielle said, probably not. And this is really something that budgeting apps like Copilot can help you track. There's a whole section in the app that's just for subscriptions and it'll lay out everything that you're paying for on a recurring basis each month. And it can be pretty eye opening because sometimes, you know, you sign up for that free trial and the free trial period comes to an end and you forgot to turn it off. And even if it's just $5 a month, you may not notice it when you're just glancing on your um, bank statement, your credit card statement. That can add up. Like we said, I mean, that's $70 a year that you could be spending on something else. So it's really something to keep a more watchful eye on. At the end of the day, personal finance is personal and needs to be something that you know how to manage yourself and can realistically manage based on your lifestyle. Personal finance is something that can seem really scary, but if you take it one step at a time, it can honestly be really easy. And as we mentioned earlier, small steps can lead to big results. Hopefully these five tips will be a good starting point for you on your financial journey, wherever you are. Let us know on Instagram at athlete to adult and at Allie Peterson, if this was helpful. And if you have any other financial topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to athlete to adult. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support us, subscribe to the podcast or leave a rating and review. To catch the latest from us, check out our website or follow us on Instagram at athlete to adult. See you next time.